Hello and Kroiso to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How are you, James? Right? All good? Good, thanks, buddy. Yeah, so uh, hot off the, uh, the, the the back of the Amazing Deeds Music Cymru episode with Pat Morgan. We've got a, a one in, a week later. That's not like us. <laughs> I know, unheard of, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, again, we didn't want to miss out on such a big milestone in Welsh music. Um, the amazing 30th, I can't believe it, really. 30th anniversary of Generation Terrorist. So... So tell me, when was the first time you would have come across this album? Um, well, it's quite sad, really, mate, because um, I only really got into the Mannix. Like, everything must go. You know, I was sort mm-hmm. of 15, 16 at the time, and, you know, obviously that sort of explosion and stuff. So I didn't really know much, to be honest, about the band before that. But um mate of mine did, and, you know, he had all the albums. So I was like, I wanted to sort of, you know, research and, and hear the albums and, and start from this stuff from the start. And it's such yeah. a massive departure from what I'd sort of, you know, been introduced to with, um, you know, everything must go. Um, and then listening to, um, yes, like slash and burn and, and these sort of things and that West Buckley's Midlands Lloyd and stuff. But then you do really get those gems, which you talk about with, with Terry mm-hmm. in the episode, like, you know, the ones that is still on rotation at the gigs, the one we went to last year, um, you know, like you love us and, obviously classic one like motorcycle emptiness and mm. you know, even like little baby nothing which is just oh, a, amazing a one of my, it's probably my top 10 that yeah yeah it's just a beautiful track that you you know when you think of generation terrorist you think of that guns and roses sort of like mm. um you know it, almost like tail end of the 80s rock scene yeah. um but then you get these beautiful gems like that yeah i had a weird sort of trajectory with the manix like i, I got into um, around the time of i uh, know your enemy which would be quite rare amongst manix fans really um, so I remember seeing Design for Life on the telly when it came out about 10, 11 years old, when they were winning Brits. And I remember thinking the, the video was really powerful, with like James blasting up the vocals yeah. and all the slogans, amazing video. Yeah, when, when I first heard Generation Terrorists, um, it was already about a decade old. <laughs> and I, I remember you coming around um, my mum's house, actually. This is going back whew, 2002, around the time I'd first got into the Mannix. And, yeah. um, I remember you singing that West Barkley bit of noise in there <laughs> <laughs> my mum's house. Yeah, and I remember... Um, you try to show me motorcycle emptiness on the guitar and like, yeah, yeah. Uh, God, Latrice Dessa, uh, yeah. to your era. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. Um, which is on the following album, which I still haven't quite mastered uh, all these years later on my uh, <laughs> rudimentary like, guitar playing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm no James Dean Bradfield, yeah. Um, but yeah, as you said, um, it, it's, it's, it's a flawed masterpiece, I would say. Like, I, I would say that um, I think Terry alludes to the same, like, it, it could have a few tracks sort of shaved off it, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe So Dead or Damn Dog, which is, is good fun, but I'm not sure how great a song it is, really. Yeah, I know the band love it because of Times Square. Um, but yeah, it's, it's got like these underrated gems like Condemned to Rock and Roll at the end. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's just, to me, Generation Terrace is the perfect embodiment of the Mannix walking it as, like they talked it, you know. Um, and, and what I loved as well, it, it's just the, it's the perfect introduction into the literary side of the manic as well each um song on there on the artwork was you know accompanied by a literary or you know culture quote yeah and um yeah it, it's it, it's probably you know you could argue that it's it's maybe uh aged a bit uh less well than some of the yeah. other others in there you know it's a little bit hair metal um this program ju- uh, drums by yeah uh, sean moore and um, the late steve brown on there but you know 
there's stuff that is still staples of the manic set and they still sound amazing motorcycle emptiness you know we, we wear the, their cardiff gig you know starting off a gig with motorcycle emptiness yeah. you can't beat that <laughs> you love us you know was always used towards the end slash and but yeah amazing yeah and then um, you know some real difficult memories brought up on the episode with with terry so really you know thankful to her for you know replaying some of the you know the the stories you know obviously living with the band at Askew Road and obviously Philip's passing and you know Richie's disappearance coming around the same sort of time and she goes into that you know quite in depth and um Mm. yeah it was it was it was it was quite a challenging episode and um I think we 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 allude to it as well in in the episode that it was it was recorded over two um two halves and the first one you know a long time ago um in the middle of uh, of lockdown and and Dave's Dave's, Dave's, you know, uh, in, in involved in the first half, but the second half we only recorded last week to make sure we got it out in time for um for 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 the anniversary. So it's a little bit of a continuity uh, challenge there. But yeah, Terry was um, as patient and um yeah um giving as um, as anyone has ever been um on this podcast. We've lucky to have some amazing guests who've been so generous with their time. Um, so I can only yeah thank be thankful to her for you know for her honesty and um. Yeah, unflinching sort of um, uh, recollections. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant guest. Um, I um, <clears throat> met with Terry for a drink before the Himalayas gig in uh, Cardiff at the Globe um, last year. And I must have bent her, her ear for one hour straight <laughs> for all the stories about the Mannix and working with Stone Roses and Oasis. And, yeah. You know, the, the, the people she's worked with are, are, are you know, a, a who's who, not just of the Welsh music industry, as we, you know, say in this episode, but just generally, like, the, it's... The people she's worked with, and and the people who want who, to work with her. Well, absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah, a real fascinating um, career, you know, and life. Yeah, thanks again for all the support, and um, yeah, the feedback to the to the return of the podcast with the Dave Music Cymru episode last week was um, was phenomenal. Really, um, yeah, really appreciate it. It's lots of kind words. Yeah, just keep an eye on the socials for for future future episodes and guests upcoming. And we've got a few in the bank, but we want to get back to a bit more of a, of a rhythm with the recording as well. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. Um, Giacomo Terry, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, you know, it's a it's a real privilege and a pleasure to have you on on the podcast. How are you? How's lockdown treating you? Well, I'm very happy to be um, asked to do this. So thank you for having me. And I'm good. I'm um, I'm probably like all of you, struggling to get to the end of this uh, lockdown and get back to doing normal things <laughs> absolutely what sort of music has got you through lockdown well funny enough it's been i've walked loads so i get out there and, and get into a shuffle mode so whether it's my own library that sort of goes around and round, and suddenly something slaps you in the the other day i came across hosier which i thought god he's so good isn't he not i didn't discover him but when you put your itunes shuffle on as you as you go walking um what else? And just going back, really, I've been listening to the Beta Band a lot. They're a band we worked on at Hall or Nothing. Um, I've discovered that I adore Harry Styles in more ways than one. <laughs> I just love him. Arlo Parks completely <laughs> fell in love with. Arlo Parks is astonishing. Oh, yeah. Something recently, that little kid Puma Blue, is that, is that his name? Kind of very trippy, James Blakey. Loved him, that, well, what I've heard of him. But I guess it's that sort of shuffle going back into your, you know, when you're on those long walks and you're just doing your shuffle I, I thing. Manix, 
Himalayas demos, which are coming. But yeah, I mean, the big, the big thing for me, I think, was Arlo Parks in the last few months. What about you guys? I, I, I tend not to listen to anything that's not Welsh now because I feel a bit of a, a betrayal not uh, knowing my stuff. Uh, but, uh, no. Yes. Really. <laughs> so take us back to the very start, growing up in Hammersmith, I believe, is it? What was your earliest musical memories? Um, well, I was really lucky because I had a sister who worked in a record shop and I grew up in Shepherd's Bush in West London. And the, and the place was sort of rich for music. It was very mixed race. It was, um, at, the shop was in Shepherd's Bush Market and it was a famous chart return shop, actually. At, back in the days when none of your listeners will probably remember the chart return shops at the end of a Saturday, somebody came in with a booklet and you had to write down all the catalogue numbers really quickly, which you were supposed to doing in the day. That's how they formed the chart back then with people like me and the girls mm-hmm. going, oh, my God, what was Michael Jackson's, you know, it was sort of 1982 or something. So I think the record shop, being about 15 or 16, working as a Saturday girl in a record shop was a massive, a massive thing. Um, and you'd walk along Shepherd's Bush Market and there'd be a reggae shop called Caesar's Palace in one corner, our big place in another, and music was just everywhere. And it was that whole kind of two-tone time that we grew up in. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that was a big, big part of it. Having an older brother and sister was also uh, the greatest thing that could happen to me because my sister would bring home records from the record shop, which were much more contemporary, like the new Blondie single. You know, when I first heard Ripper to Shreds, it was like, what is that? And then my older brother was a bit sort of proggy, so I was listening to... Yes, and the Eagles and Pink Floyd. So I had this very, very rich education from like different spectrums. Um, that was amazing. But the record shop was was really it. And then again, my sister, God bless her, uh, went to work at Arista Records. And uh, a friend called her from another record label and said, we need a little junior in A&R. Do you know anyone? Does your sister know anyone? And I'll go, I'll do it. What's A&R? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what it meant. What does does A&R mean? And so in 1983, I went to work at Christmas Records um, and just loved it and didn't realise that that could be a job, that, you know, you were in there and that's where. Was it it similar to um, how John depicts it and Kill Your Friends? How how sort of accurate is that or is that a big... Exaggeration. Uh, I something. think there's a little bit of uh, imagination on John Niven's part in that, but but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he did base it. He worked at London Records, so he he did. I don't think he killed anyone, as far as I know. But he did. <laughs> I kind of vaguely know the characters he based it on, and and yeah, there is real rivalry when someone. I remember when Philip was trying to sign the Mannix, and at first everybody laughed but then everybody came on board and i it was really stressful because you're trying to balance out keeping everyone sort of interested keeping everyone happy but trying to zone in on the one you want without losing the ones that may sort of fall away too early so um yeah <laughs> i don't think it was like kill your friends <laughs> <laughs> the manics are in that book aren't they there's lots of little hall or nothing references Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, can I just take you back to your record store, Dave, and just get into yeah. music? Were you, because because of that time, you know, like you mentioned Scar, were, were you 
part of any tribes growing up? Were you a, uh, a rude girl or a modette or any of that no. sort of thing? I was probably a little bit too young to be in a tribe because it was all just starting. But my my brother, some of his little mates looked like they walked out of madness or selector. So no, I wasn't quite in a <laughs> tribe. I mean, within the school I went to in, in White City, it was very, very diverse. So there was a lot of reggae music. There was a lot, there was a little bit of punk. Um, there was a real mixture of music. So I think it was a really good kind of musical education, being in a school that was very, very mixed race on a council estate in Shepherd's Bush. You know, there was sort of, there was something for everyone. It was, it was kind of the the late 70s, early 80s. So it was sort of dance music, kind of disco, I guess. So we'd go dancing. I tell you what was a big track as well at the time, that Africa Bambata. You know, I started going to the Hammersmith Palais and dancing like you do which I don't do anymore. And they were the big, big records at the time. And that that record was amazing. You know, that sort of rap, Africa Bambata, that was just, yeah. that's what we did. We we went to dance, which is weird. So, you know, my kind of yeah, yeah. history of All or Nothing and, and a lot of sort of white boys with guitars is quite strange because it wasn't really what I grew up listening to. I, it was either sort of black music or dance music and that sort of mixed race scar specials, that kind of thing, um, that was in the air. I think it was probably Philip's influence that got me into all this guitar music because I thought the Manics were pretty dreadful when I first heard them. <laughs> hold, hold on to that fault. Edit that out. <laughs> that's, that's coming um, out. That. That's coming out. Musically, yeah. <laughs> tell us, tell us a bit about um, you know when you joined Chrysalis Records because obviously you. Um, you befriended Simon Fuller, who, who become yeah. the you know the Svengali behind the Spice Girls and, yeah. and S Club Seven. You know what what were those days like at Chrysalis? They they were really good. I mean, again, it was so exciting. You know, I was kind of eighteen, and I was just the sort of bod in the A and R department. Um, and I kind of thought you can either be here and make tea forever, or you can sort of learn what this is about. So you know, in the lunch hours, you know if. It, you know, we were the department that put bands in studios and developed them. So I used to sort of study where all the demo studios were under 100 quid, where the recording studios were. And I really did kind of study it. But also as a child growing up, when you got your record on a Saturday, I was that girl who read the sleeve notes. I knew who the tape op was on some of the records. So moving into that department was... yeah. Interesting, because suddenly you'd see a name and go, I know that name. He was the tape op on so-and-so. So I was a kind of little nerdy type of affair. But it was, it was brilliant. It was, I think, Spandau Ballet was the big kind of albums that were launching. We had, I mean, it was extraordinary. You're 18 from Shepherd's Bush, sort of Billy Idol comes in and smashes up the office because he can't find a copy of his album. <laughs> it was like... It was, yeah, it was really interesting. And I made lifelong friendships there. I met uh, a lady called Alison Donald, um, who is now head of Cobalt and was co-president of Columbia Records. And she and I are still best friends now. And as you say, James, I met Simon Fuller there. Um, and he and I used to just hang out and go to gigs in that sort of little A&R gang. And he signed a band called The Adventures from Northern Ireland, and he signed Paul Hardcastle. Oh, yeah. 
And one day he came to me and said, look, neither of these acts are managed. I'm going to manage them myself. Will you come and help me set it all up? And and we did in 1985. We, we got space within Chris Morrison's office. Chris Morrison managed Thin Lizzy and Dead or Alive and Ultravox and Blur. And he gave us a room and set Simon up. Um, and three weeks later, Paul Hardcastle's 19 went to number one and was selling 60,000 yeah. singles a day, which is if you did that in a campaign. Oh, that's and literally, we'd be in the office till 11 at night counting, I mean, the sale. I mean, it sold three and a half million copies of that, that one single, <clears throat> which I remember Simon saying, God, what do we, where do we go from here when you start up a management company? <laughs> and you have this delay. <laughs> what do we do now? And I was like, why are you so fed up? And he was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do after this. So it was brilliant. And I learned a lot from him. <laughs> I learned a lot from Alison. You know, so many great people within that, that company. It was fantastic. And then, uh, you know, yeah, the record company was great. Really good. You part a company with Simon and set up this much talent providing management PR for record producers like Robin Miller and Nellie Hooper. Um, were, were those daunting days, having decided to go your own way, or a, a, a new challenge you embraced? No, I was, I was, um, I was never daunted. Um, I, I, I remember being at Simon's and getting a few calls from people to yeah. go and work there and getting offered, like, twice as much money in some cases. Um, and I went to meet the late Jill Sinclair, who managed Trevor Horn. And I went to meet a guy called James Todd, who was part of Prince's management company in Europe. Um, and I, I remember going home to Philip going, I don't know what to do and where to go. And he was like, well, you must have something for these people. Why don't you just do it yourself? And it was like, oh, OK. So I just think maybe it's youth. Maybe, I mean, I was 24. Maybe you think, shit, OK, yeah. I, I could do this. Um, and with his encouragement, I, I did. I just found a place in Labrick Grove in West London, set up an office, gave it a name, and, um, and, and had a few people from Simon that I took, Pat Collier being one of them, who was one of those great producers at the oh, time. Yeah. He did the Wonder Stuff, and he okay. did a lot of creation record stuff. He did, um, Christ, what did he do? Adorable is some of those. He actually did Katrina and the Waves Walking on Sunshine before I met him. And I don't think he ever got royalty for it. Um, so, yeah, that was exciting. But, yeah, it probably was a bit daunting walking into your own office and putting your own desk down. And, and you know, but I, I kind of think I worked hard. I wish I had that balls now sometimes. I think, do you find when you're younger you are – so much more yeah, absolutely. think less I think I thought yeah, yeah. and now I probably overthink <laughs> yeah. as we all do as you get older because you've got mortgages and things like that but yeah Philip's encouragement yeah yeah and I'm having a few to start off with but I'd always have a good idea and pitch something to an A&R manager and and if it wasn't right at the time I'd bring something else to the table so yeah, I was quite lucky it didn't earn a lot of money and then when Philip got sick um, it was quite a lonely place to be, but weirdly and serendipitously, a friend of mine worked at the townhouse studios and, and they managed artists. And she came in one day in floods of tears, Sandy, 
and was like, they're closing down the studio. What am I going to do? And I was like, you're going to come here. You're going to bring Nellie Hooper. We'll go 50-50 and that's it. And it, then it was like a youth club. Then it was, it was the greatest support that, that could have happened to me at the time when I had a husband with cancer that Sandy Devorniak came into this much talent, brought in Nellie and we joined forces. And that for about a year kept me propped up until it got to the point where I just couldn't work anymore. And, you know, I had to be with Philip. And and if every time I went to work, he felt he did. So I, I soon discovered that if I give it up, then he'll give it up and then he can rest a bit more. But but this much talent was great. It was a great name <laughs> as well. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You do obviously mentioned um, Philip, just for, for listeners. No, Philip was obviously Philip Hall. Um, amazing PR mind, you know, former press officer at Stiff Records, and you know, set up Hall or Nothing with his with with his brother Martin. Um, t- tell us about how you met. Was it in the ship in Soho? Oh my God, you've done your homework, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was. I think um, I mentioned before my girlfriend Alison Donald, who I found me the job at uh, Chrysalis. Um, she worked with him at Stiff and she introduced me to him. I think we all went to a gig one night and a load of us went into the ship and he was introduced in a group of people and I was like, okay, whatever. We went to see Head. Do you remember Gareth Sagan? His band. He was in Rip Brig and Panic. And afterwards she said, oh, I think Philip quite likes you. And I was like, I'm not sure if I like him. Please don't, 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 don't try and put us together. And then, yeah, we went from there and we had... I think we went out for six months and then he moved in. And then after a time, we bought Askew Road and, and that's where eventually we were, two became six. <laughs> <laughs> that, that leads nicely into my next question, actually. Um, so, yeah, within three years of yourself and Philip uh, being happily married, um, you were joined by some unique house guests, to say the least. Um <laughs> A mess of eyeliner and spray paint, slogans and stencils. James, Nicky, Richie and Sean from a certain young Blackwood band came to live with you at Askew Road. Can you remember the first time you met Manic Street Preachers and what were your first impressions? Um, no, I, I can't remember the first time. Isn't that weird? It's funny, I, I, the Manics lived in my house. I don't remember the first day they arrived and I don't really remember when they left. Isn't that strange? <laughs> But I know they were there for about two years. Um, the first time I met them, no, it was probably after a gig. No, sorry, I don't remember. I might have to ring James now. <laughs> Do you right. remember the first time you met me? It's a little bit different, Dave, to your uh, first meeting with the Mannix, probably around the similar sort of time. That left a, left a bit of impression on you. Yeah, I, I had a memorable... Um introduction to philip philip and martin at saint david's hall uh, and i think it was november 1989 possibly and philip and martin were there i was introduced to them uh, at an alarm gig so they were playing uh, you know the alarm were being looked after by hall or nothing i believe and philip and martin had come down for it or taken in the gig because at that time, they were a pains to point out they were working with this fantastic young band from Blackwood that they would send in to see me at some point. And I was like, oh, fantastic. I'd love to love to chat to them. Sounds exciting. Not knowing at all what I was going to face when 
they first walked through the doors at the newspaper offices and I was met with this sort of uh, <laughs> uh, f- 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 the fury and the anger and the bile and the invective and the intelligence <laughs> and the, the, the staggering vision that stood in front of me and the fact they scared our photographer when they asked for felt-tip pens to write on themselves. <laughs> and um, I, I, could, I could tell you uh, the story of, so the newspaper offices were called Thompson House, and they were a grand old building with sort of marble floors and quite a grand entrance to the building. And they had an old, an old uh, retired army officer um, on the front desk who had the epaulets and a sort of, you know, like a concierge, I guess. And um, he rang up when I was waiting for the manager to arrive, and he said, uh, Dave, Four fucking aliens have landed in reception for you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we went across the road to, uh, which was, a, it was now the magistrate's court, but it was a pile of rubble at that point. Whatever was there previously, which I think was the general post office or something like that. And they all sat on the rubble, a suitably dystopian photograph of the four <laughs> of them, with James pulling his top down to reveal riot written on his chest. And um, I was I was just bedazzled, really. And then to add to the, um, the 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 clash of the cultures, the working class and the the intelligence, we went and sat upstairs in Burger King, and I conducted the interview there. I say conducted the interview there. Basically, they talked at me for an hour, and I couldn't really pause for breath to take it yeah. all in. So. I, I- yeah. I remember um, covering a journal for plague lovers event at Spillers. Can you remember that, Dave, when we did that? Yeah. Oh, my God, about 10, 11 years ago. And you said yeah. to James then, and you remember you saying, oh, yeah, it was in Burger King, wasn't it? And you, yeah, you remembered the felt of the thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was a big night out for them. But, but it's <laughs> funny how you know, they were so memorable because, you know, if memory serves, we were coming out sort of baggy and, and shoegazing and, and yeah. nobody yeah. dressed up did they there wasn't really no. that scene and, and everyone people took the piss out of them terribly didn't they yeah. but but I what I loved about them is they were there was a freshness to their sort of you know we knew who they were sort of we knew who their heroes were um but there was yeah, something yeah. glamorous about that you know if you're going to go on stage don't look like a roadie you look like a rock star and they did that really well they put Absolutely. so well and they thought about yeah, yeah. the shows. I remember going to Shepherd's Bush Market and buying gold lame material for them, and we draped it over amps. And, you know, I guess a lot of bands think about yeah. that, but sitting with them in Asky Road in the living room and not being kind of involved in it, but just listening to their chats with Philip of just all those things were important to them. You know, some bands will think about the gig, some bands will think about the sound check, but they thought about everything. What colour would the amp be? Would there be this yeah. on it? How you know, so to be that young and not have much money, but still try and apply those details, that was impressive. I think. Yeah, that was impressive. What did Philip say it, to you uh, when you came back? Yeah, Terry. Well, what did Philip say to you when he came back from? I, I believe him and Martin travelled to Blackwood to That's see them right, play yeah. set at, at a school in Newbridge, uh, which was quite a memorable event, apparently. Uh, was a bleeding Nicky Wire who somehow smashed his face into his own head. Um, well, can you remember what he what he said and why they loved the band and wanted to sign them? You, you know, again, Dave, it's one of those things that it, it, there's. I don't remember the specifics, but I 
I do remember emphatically it, there was just no question. There was no dithering. He was going to manage them. You know, that one meeting yeah. did everything for him, for him and Martin and they were on board. And, and I think he kind of, yeah. you know, he, I think he read me extracts of the now famous letter that they wrote, not just to him, but they sent it to a lot of key people in the industry. And I think he loved that, you know, that sort of, they were the, the sort of upsetters. He loved how intelligent they were. Um, I think music to him was a little bit secondary, but he loved being a PR and a former journalist. He absolutely got, he had that vision. Uh, and I got to hand it to him because not a lot of people saw what he saw. You know, so many people laughed at them. So many people thought they were a joke. Um, but he just had that unshakable belief. So if he believed it, I believed it. You know, even though on a musical level, I thought it was a bit... F- shabby <laughs> but but there was always something yeah. in James's melody that sort of hooked me in um more so at the time for me than than the sort of visual aspect of it I always thought James was was a huge part of it the, those melodies that they're what I took away from gigs you know I know we were looking at Nick and Richie and and the whole spectacle of it but I always kind of had a, a strong belief in what James was doing which I still think is He's pretty underrated today. You know, I defy anyone to take some of those lyrics and turn them into melodies. Just near impossible. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like living, living with them then? Um, it, was, it was really natural. It, it, it's funny because they used to sort of stay there occasionally when if they were doing a gig close to London, they'd stay yeah. with us and... You know, if they couldn't afford hotels, they'd stay with us. And I think I've said it in a, in another interview. I, you know, I one night I said to yeah. Philip, when the band stay in hotels, who pays for it? And he went, we do. And I went, right, then they can stay here more often. Because obviously it was our money that was sort yeah, of yeah. rolling them along. They weren't signed. I mean, I, we got married in 1990 and they moved in very soon after again. I can't remember when they when they moved in but it was very soon after I got married and Generation Terrorist came out in 1992 so it took us me and Philip to prop them up a bit and then eventually Sony and then the record came out but it's not like the record made any the, the album didn't debut at one you'll remember um but living with them was it it was like I mean it sounds really cheesy but it was like having a sort of ready-made family it was very it was very domestic, you know, we'd all come in at the end of the day, I'd come home from work, I worked for Robin Miller at the time, and Philip would, and I'd make dinner, and we'd all sit around watching telly, or they would, you know, talk about, you know, how they were going to um, sell millions of albums and split up and be like Guns and Roses. And so a lot of our nights were their chatter, their work chatter, which Occasionally I'd ignore or sometimes I'd dip into, but but that's how it was. We were, you know, if we were home, we'd be all sitting in the living room watching TV or something. Saturday mornings and the chart show are vivid memories and, and a time when I really recognised their ambition because that was the law in our house. And I guess it was for a lot of people that you'd watch the chart show. And the chart show used to sort of flip. One week it would be a rock chart, another week it would be the pop chart and and the, there was a bristling in the room when it was the rock chart because they were so competitive and they kind of so 
you know, we're going to do that. We could do that. And it was, and you kind of thought, God, you lot really are ambitious. You really, really want and deserve to yeah, sort yeah. of get where you, you think you might be going. Did Nicky cultivate his love of hoovering when he was living at, at your place? I don't know. <laughs> I think it may have always been in him. I think it always was in him because I was quite a naggy, stricty kind of, you know, which weird because I was only about 25 and I wasn't much older than them. But but we did have like yeah. little rules. We did have like the cleaning would happen at the weekend and on a Saturday I think Nick's job was hoovering and and cleaning the skirting boards and, you know, someone else would do something else. But everyone chipped in. There were never any – I mean, it's really weird that for probably – if they moved in soon after we married and they moved out before Philip died, it was probably a couple of years that it was almost sometimes the most natural thing in the world to have these four guys sort of sitting Mm. around the flat and and – they're washing hanging over the round. I remember Baby Sham used to be in my fridge. There you go. They really did live it. <laughs> <laughs> was it yourself that introduced um, Nikki and Ricky to makeup remover as well? Oh, yeah, because they used to come home from gigs and, you know, hardly take the makeup off or scrape it off or it would be on pillowcases every day. And I think I introduced <laughs> them to a unique bar of makeup remover soap which Richie just thought was the most the greatest luxury ever so I used to say you know you're not taking it off and you're dragging your face around and washing their face in like soap real soap so yeah there was sort of funny warm moments that I never imagined in my life I'd be standing in my own bathroom with four guys in a band going this is how you take your mascara off properly (laughs) maybe not James James didn't really go for the makeup or Sean but yeah, it, it was really sweet. It's, I mean, it sounds like little flipping house on the prairie, but <laughs> <laughs> they were out on tour a lot of the time as well. So I think Philip and I, from memory, did have a little bit of respite from them. But yeah, they were wonderful house guests. They were really <laughs> respectful. They'd go and do the scary bits to people like your your doorman, Dave, somewhere else, but they didn't really do yeah, it in yeah. my house. You obviously didn't share the 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 early belief that um, Philip had in the band, but when did your I guess beliefs align and you sort of saw what he saw? I think I mean to say I didn't believe in them isn't true. I thought they were sort of messy musically. I don't think they were very competent musicians, um, and I thought it was all a bit shabby. I think I saw them at the Marquee very very early on and it was just insane and i i thought they were great there um i thought that was really good um but but you know song wise i always thought they had it because i always thought they had great melodies i could always sing you a manic song um but i always thought yeah. the, the records and the demos were a bit a bit um shabby but the ideas were great so so i i did believe in them but i i thought I think Philip had a belief in what they were saying and and the whole concept of the band more than me. I think I was looking at, because I worked with producers, I was hearing what I was hearing and I was sort of judging them more on that side of it. Did did Ask You Road ever become like a sort of makeshift studio space for them? Can you remember much of the songs coming together? No. I do. Well, they used to write there. Um, I don't remember so much with, with Generation Terrorists, but I know that, this is taking the, the conversation on a little bit, but wh- when they 
after Philip died and when Richie went missing, um, we were a little bit worried about James sort of being the, the main one in London and, and sort of going around town and being quite upset by the accusations that the whole Richie thing was a scam. And I know he'd be quite upset by that. He came to see me one night in a in a bar where I was doing it. We were at the Astoria doing a Prince gig, weirdly. And he was so mad and so upset by, I think someone that night has said, you know, yeah, you know, when are you going to, you know, reveal that he didn't really go missing? And, and people didn't believe. So I, I think I rang Martin and said James should come back to the house and not be alone during that time. Um, and when James came back, he he was writing Everything Must Go. Um, after Richie went missing, I know Nick was sending him songs. And I, I remember quite vividly The Girl Who Wanted to Be God. And I remember um, Design for Life, I think. And he, I remember he played me a couple one night and I was, I was so upset because I thought, God, this, this is the future. You know, there is, this band will continue. Um, but yeah, he'd always be in the kitchen or in the living room, just on a guitar. It wasn't sort of a studio, as you say. But yeah, he'd be he'd be sort of working through Nick's lyrics um, in those days and nights that uh, after Richie's disappearance. Which I think, if he hadn't had that, he may have gone crazy. If he hadn't had that focus. Mm. After um, guiding the Manics through their first two albums, uh, Philip sadly passed away uh, in December '93. Um, the Mannix would go on to uh, dedicate their masterpiece, The Holy Bible, um, to Philip. Um, an, an unreal album in the end, a, a bleak masterpiece, but an album that nevertheless will be listened to in the next 30, 40 years, I would say. Definitely. It's it's probably my favourite album of theirs, um, That and Everything Must Go. Um, and again, it, it, it highlights the, the best of everything. It's Richie's lyrics, it's James's amazing arrangements of eking those lyrics into into amazing melodic songs um but yeah dark um troubled it's funny when when that album came into the office and the lyrics for that album came into the office there was a lot of furrowed brows uh among me and the staff of of where was richie's head and and not to the extent that we thought do what he'd do, whatever that, whatever that is. But just that sort of mind and the topics he addressed and and just how he got into some of those sort of characters. Um, yeah, it was quite a sort of, the Holy Bible's very dark time for Hall or Nothing. And I think that that kind of, you know, from Philip's death to that, to, to Richie's disappearance, it was... Yeah, it was a very, very um, strange, strange time. Just, and I think it was sort of ignited by that record almost because it was just so bleak. And you know, it's not a record you, you know, you're not going to put on walking abortion at a party. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think our realization at, at the office that that that's where his mind was, and I, I don't think we were equipped to to call it or or see how deep that went or, or what was down the road for all of us or what was down the road for him. But I do remember us sort of pouring over the lyrics and thinking, shit, you know, what, is this an extraordinary mind? Is this a broken mind? Is this, is this both? 
but yeah, it, 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 but it's still weirdly mine and a lot of people I know favorite Mannix record. What were you worried Terry about Richie's mindset? And did you, did you have any sense that he was moving away from the band or he was unhappy or was there any signals there that alarmed you? I, yes, people were worried. I think after Philip died and in the run-up to his disappearance, I'm not sure I had that much close contact with him. I think the question should be for the band or Martin because I just lost my husband and I was dealing with my my own loss and, and grief. But I, But I will tell you, Philip died in December 93, and I think in May 94, the office and, and Martin and my sister and my family were worried about me. And I think, yes, you're right, we yeah. were worried about Richie. So the two of us went off to a health farm, which was quite surreal, like me and okay. sort of Richie go to, and we went for five days, and he was fantastic company. You'd never really know there was anything really troubling him. And I think in a funny way, whatever was going on with him, if it was very much raging inside at the time, he possibly put it to one side because he was very concerned about me. And I remember him ringing the office and saying to my sister who ran the office, going, I'm really worried she's always asleep. She's always asleep in the day because we'd go and do sort of activities in the place and then have a sleep and have dinner and then we I think we used to play Scrabble in the evening <laughs> sorry this is a really non-rock and roll story yeah. isn't it but he rang the office oh, this is, this is <laughs> expressing concern about me because I was kind of obviously sleeping and god knows if I was on some sort of yeah. pill for grief or whatever it was um but one night we as I say we used to sit around and play Scrabble and he was just joyous company he was wonderful I mean at the time I was sort of going through my own thing so I wasn't picking up every detail but but one night we went back to his room and we watched Apocalypse Now um and as you know famously he loved that that book and he pulls out from his suitcase a sort of A4 notebook full of notes and scribblings and musings and and I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Why can't you just watch a film like everybody else? Because it was like that brother-sister thing. And he was like, you know, he was yeah. trying to find an answer within probably one of the most yeah. darkest films. And I was like, Christ, Richie, if you're going to look for the meaning in, of life, then fucking look for it in Apocalypse Now. And and actually, he kind of laughed. <laughs> I was like, please throw away that book. It's just, it was just like crazy yeah. kind of ramblings and scribblings and questions and musings. And he, and he actually did laugh and he went, oh, you're right. No wonder I'm so depressed. <laughs> and it was like, and it was sort of, he kind of got it. And he, and he, you know, it wasn't so deep and it wasn't so troubling because I was just doing the sort of slight big sister going, oh, for goodness sake, man, what is wrong with you? Um. But but that week is 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 quite a lovely memory for me because we spent a lot of just strange time for both of us. Not neither of us were used to doing nothing, you know, going to a spa and and you know eating in a health farm. But I tell you, he was, you know, when people said about his 
anorexia over the time, he was the first in line for dinner every night. <laughs> he was like the hungry one banging <laughs> on the dining room door. But it was just wonderful. And it was, it almost felt like there was some normal in our life, despite having lost Philip and my grief. And, and it, it was, it, it was a lovely time. I remember it with, with real warmth because as I say, he was sort of looking out for me. I was sort of looking out for him, but yeah, it was five days that, that I'll always remember. It was, it was just lovely. Um, and that was, I don't know what, seven, eight months before he then disappeared, but he, he never gave me any inclination during those days that there was anything truly dark going on. Um, which is why when it happened, it was quite shocking. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant story. It's this sort of stuff that you just never hear. You know, I've never heard no. any of that. that no, you, you've just told well, us, which is fantastic. Yeah. Should, should we talk about Richie's disappearance, boys? If you're comfortable to, yeah. Yeah. What do you remember? Do you remember where you were when you heard it? And what were those first few days and weeks like for for you and the, the team at All or Nothing? Um, I think for the first... I think my sister was called to the host. My sister Liz worked in the management office alongside Martin. Yeah. And I think she was called to the hotel to say, look, would you stay in his room in case he comes back? And Martin had to go off and deal with the police. Yeah. Um, so I think in the office we thought he's just lost his bottle for America and you know, none of us had any notion that what would, what happened would happen. And I think after a few, I think the first I heard of it, because I think at the time people kind of kept things from me because of the, the loss of Philip. But I remember Martin rang me soon after, and I don't know if it was days or hours, I'm sorry. I just, my memory is a little murky. And and Martin, in a sort of roundabout way, was like, hello, have you heard from Richie? And I was like, no, why? I thought they'd gone to America. And I think they were thinking that if something happened to Richie, he may return to Aspen Road or he may call there. Because remember, they didn't live with us then. So that was the first time yeah. I thought maybe there's something really wrong here because I just heard it in Martin's voice that, you know, just the way he was trying to deal with it in a calm way. And, you know, you can tell when someone's trying to be calm and they're not. So so my memory at the time was, I think that Martin Hall obviously heard first as the manager because James alerted him. Um, and I think it took maybe a day or maybe so many hours before I got a call from Martin Hall trying to sort of cover his concerned by asking had I heard from Richie, which I thought was strange because the band was supposed to be en route to America. Um, and, and that's when he kind of told me that he was missing from the hotel, that he and James didn't make their flight, and everyone thought that Richie might make his way back to Esky Road where, you know, if he was having problems, that might be his sort of spiritual home, as it were. So, yeah. so obviously he didn't. Um, but I could hear in Martin's voice how worried he was uh, and sure. uh, and that kind of troubled me but but again we had no idea that 
it was going to play out in the way it would. We thought maybe he's just, you know, just had to go and blow his head off somewhere and he was too nervous to go to America. But in, in the in the weeks that followed, I don't think a group of people deserved the kind of conversations we had with police that were explicit and just so, I don't know, troubling. And every time, I think a lot of people don't know this, but every time a body was found, we would be notified and they'd have to describe that body to us so that we could say, no, 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 Richie didn't have that. or And they were sort of gruesome. I won't go into all of them, but some of them were pretty gruesome. And you'd put the phone down and you'd be shaking with relief that, it wasn't him, but then you think, well, it was someone that has been found at head, or it was someone's kid or brother, or so. Yeah, I mean, when you look, when I look back at that time, it's like shit. You know, we were all in our twenties, having those surreal conversations mm. that you think you're only ever going to see on television. Um, lots of meetings mm. with police. I think Martin probably had more. They'd occasionally come to the office to sort of. Uh, talk to us again um and and just just those conversations where you know they looked at footage for two weeks on the oust service station uh, and and they were convinced that that nobody had thrown themselves in so in a funny kind of way although that conversation is is gruesome and dark you kind of think okay he maybe didn't do what people are thinking he did Maybe he's still around. And I think that burning hope that he would ring on the door or turn up at the office was really, really real. You know, we all lived in that in that kind of hope that that this would pass and he'd come home. And it was really hard. I can't imagine how that was for the parents. I can't imagine how that felt for the band. But I know it sort of brought a brought sort of blanket of darkness to the office as well. It was really hard, really hard. Yeah, looking back now, Terry, with what are we? Twenty six years ago, last month. Um, what have, have you always had? A, have you formed an opinion about what you think has happened to Richie, or has it changed over time? I think, you know, I think today if I was to sit here and, and say I think he's out there somewhere, I would be probably protecting myself rather than actually embracing the reality. And I, I think we all have to realise that that he probably isn't with us anymore. Um, and I think it it that is a hard thing to come to terms with. That's a very hard thing to admit. And I think Nicky Wires said it really well years ago when he said the minute the minute you get that closure, you have to let go of the hope or words to that extent. So for years and years and years, I was adamant that Richie was out there, that he was gone to a monastery, that he had cleansed himself of the, you know, the rock and roll virus and he was living a sort of monastic life or something. And I, I kind of cloaked myself to protect myself, I guess, that that Richie was still alive and doing what he was doing and, and that's okay because if he was happy, then 
everyone was happy. But I think after after <clears throat> years and years, and when you actually, when his family declared him dead a few years ago, you have to accept that perhaps, perhaps that's that's where we are. But it's very hard to say those words, um, as Nick said. You know, in order to get that closure, um, you have to let go of the hope. Um, but I think his family and the band clung on to that for a very long time because it's hard to let go, isn't it? It's it's really hard to let your son go, as in his parents really, really. I mean, I think you declare someone dead after seven years and they and they wouldn't. I don't think they did it till the the second seventh or possibly the third seventh. And, and I can understand that, that just I'm not going to say it out loud because then it will be true. But but knowing Richie as 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 we do and knowing what you know, Richie, I don't think Richie could survive in the world by himself. And the evidence shows that he didn't have that much money. He didn't, you know. So, you know, I still like to think he's some fuzzy character out there somewhere, but... I think we have to accept the truth that he just, he isn't in the world anymore. Sure, sure. Obviously, Manix famously returned to the recording studio to, um, to record Raindrops, um, He Falling on My Head for the, for, the, for the Help album, The War Child, which celebrated its 25th anniversary of the re-release last year. Was that also um, your return to music after you know, Philip's passing and, you know, um, tell, tell us a bit about that. Wasn't it a um, uh, initially supposed to be a gig in in Manchester? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stone Roses. Um, it wasn't quite my return to music, but it did help me in the um, in the immediate uh, time after Philip's death. I ran away um, with my friend Alison, as as I mentioned before. She was doing a year out, and I met her in Bangkok, um, and we did a couple of months traveling around Thailand and Vietnam, and it was so good for me it was because I needed to escape being in a hospital for two years as I was with Philip and it was lovely but eventually you come home and I came back in March 94 um so it was a while before we got into the help album so it wasn't the first thing uh I did but it certainly was one of those things where I did the stone roses (laughs) um and it was actually quite good because I, I got into a lot of trouble being the Stone Roses PR. <laughs> <laughs> I got into a lot of trouble, is putting it mildly. So I took on the second coming, as you do when you're not that trained as a PR, but you're, you've inherited the company. But the band believed in me and I believed in the record. Yeah, what a gig. So it was kind yeah. of strange that um, I was getting a load of flack because I, I remember thinking the band weren't ever going to commit for whatever reason to all the press that Philip and I had thought that they should do. And among the ideas we had was to do the big issue. And when we announced that and we did it, you can imagine every editor in the country thought I was the devil's spawn. And so my life as a PR started very shaky. And But weirdly, the Help album and the idea for the Help album came along and suddenly my drive along with Tony Crean and Anton uh, from Bad Moon and the late Rob Partridge sort of put me back into the good books of some of those editors. So it's a, it's a deeply personally brilliant album in, in my little CV, but also in my 
in my working life. Um, but yes, everybody committed immediately. And it was a kind of big milestone for the Manics to give us some music to, for us to sort of, you know, to make that call and call them over in, in, uh, they were in France, weren't they, doing Everything Must Go. So it must have been, it was nerve-wracking for us to ask them, but actually I found out afterwards James felt that it was a really good way to ease into that recording session post-Ritchie to do some cover for a charity record, and that kind of oiled oiled the cogs, and then they got on with the work of Everything Must Go. So help, the Help album was a big healer in, a, in more ways than one uh, for everyone. At, at present, Terry, so let's take you up to present day. Um, you come on Turner Hall with, with Robin, Robin Turner, mm-hmm. looking after the press for artists, including um, a couple of Welsh acts, Griff Reese and R.C. Leop. Um, and last year, you joined the Cardiff-based Wild Management with Lou Whiten. Can, can you tell me about how these two collaborations came about? Um, on the press side, that that's... That's something we do now and then when we fall in love with something. So we're not yeah. as active with that. But but obviously um, the connection between the Mannix and Heavenly Records is is very deep. So obviously yeah. Robin Turner is one of those amazing characters that was always around and entertaining at gigs. And during my time at Hall or Nothing, I always thought Robin would be a great addition to Hall or Nothing. But, and and I'm not speaking behind his back, I had a real discipline with Hall or Nothing, you know, it was, uh, and I didn't think Robin would fit into that at the time because Heavenly was a very sort of, I don't know, hedonistic kind of approach to press and life. And so I always sort of toyed with the idea of getting Robin in, but, you know, I think when I said to Robin, look, we start at 10, mate, some people are in at nine, we do it, you work the weekends, you do the festivals. And I think he was a, a little bit mm, not sure if I want to come and work for you. Um, but <laughs> years later, when when I left, uh, when I gave up Hall or Nothing and went back to Simon Fuller for a while, I had this sort of, I know what I want to do. I want to go and get Robin Turner and start a company. And we did. And, it, and for a few years, it was brilliant because we had Gaz Coombs and we had Griff Reese, as you say, and he's he's brilliant. He's genius. Um, and, but he's been so busy the last year with all the books and the heavenly anniversary. So yeah. there's a few sort of press projects on the horizon. So I'm looking forward to sort of getting back to together with him on that. But um, and then the Himalayas. Sure. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned I had a sort of uh, a bit of a dalliance with with sickness um, and. I managed Will Young for a time when I worked with Simon Fuller and his tour manager was Lou Whiting and I loved her. And before yeah. I had to go off and have the surgery I had in 2019, I, I have an artist called Andy Burrows going on tour to promote an album called Reasons to Stay Alive. And I was thinking, how am I going to do this? How? Because obviously you're sort of all a bit, you work by yourself and you work for yourself. And out of the blue, I got an email from Lou saying, I'm hanging up my tour managing boots and I'm going to go into management and if you need anything. And I was like, you cannot believe how the timing of your email. So she she took on Andy Burroughs for me for, for the sort of eight weeks I was out of action. And then she went on her way and I went on mine. And then I think months, months, 
months later, she sent me a band that I wasn't that keen on. And I said, look, we will do something together. And a few months later, it was the Himalayas. And I listened to them on Spotify and I just didn't think twice. I called her back and went, let me meet them. And that was right at the beginning of the last lockdown. So it's quite a strange journey with them because I met them over the phone and on a Zoom. And I think on the eve of going to Cardiff to have that formal meeting with them, we, everybody locked down. So I think I've met them twice in a year, but we've managed to put records out and we've got lots more planned in the next three months. So amazing what you can do in a lockdown. So, yeah, they're great. I love them. And um, their streaming stats are incredible as well. Is it 25 million for Thank God I'm Not You? Yeah, they do really well. They do really well. That, That track, Thank God I'm Not You, was received very well at radio. It got amazing kind of um, playlists on Spotify and it has propelled it. It's nearly 24 million now, but other singles are like half a million. You know, one is at one point something million. So, yeah, the prom. I mean, and that sustained them as well. You know, thank God for it. I wish it was more for bands like that and across iTunes as well. So they have this trickle of income that keeps them going, um, which affords them to sort of continue to be in Himalayas, especially in this crazy time. But, um, yeah. No, they're a fantastic band. And um, I think um, we've mentioned a few times about, like, you know, the inspiration for this podcast. And, you know, coincidentally, the, the Himalayas actually were as well another inspiration. I think, you know, getting into the age that I am and maybe having my musical taste, you know, being locked at, you know, 2004 with like, the Libertines and Kingsley. And I was quite keen to... You know, embrace what was going on in Wales, both on the Welsh language side of things, and and this, you know, the, the multiple scenes that you know we had on, and there was a bit of a scene going on in Cardiff with like the undertone, the venue, um, the downstairs venue in in Cardiff, and they were, you know, they were part of that. But I think they were called the Drains back then, and they just, you know, they just had something special, and the name obviously wasn't one of those. And I was, you know, building up the confidence to ask them, you know, could I manage them with no previous experience? But then by the time I sort of plucked up the courage, I think that you know my my time had gone, um, and um, you know me and Neil then started, you know, chatting about what we could do, and you know putting on putting on putting on gigs, and and then this podcast came to it. So. Um, yeah, no, I'm yeah, really excited about you know what they can do. It's a bit of a, it's a shame, you know, as you know, a lockdown has done for for many things that um, you know, they haven't you know been able to um, to pick up on that momentum that they had prior to that. But um, I think their talent and um, you know the 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 people they've got behind them, including yourself, is 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 you know is going to give them that um, you know that um that momentum or maintain that momentum as we come out of lockdown. Yeah, be, uh, the tour in, in May may or may not happen, but I'm hoping we can do something special for Wales. Reduced capacity club, or we'll do something special. I think it'd be lovely to do some little mini launch up there. Be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll oh, ter- Terry, thank you so much for your time this evening. It's been absolutely fantastic. You know, the, the candor, the honesty, the. Um, yeah, because I know there's a lot of um, emotional topics that we, we, we talked about yeah. tonight. Um, and. You know, at this point in the podcast, we we ask our guests to um, choose their favorite Welsh album and induct it into the the Welsh Music Hall of Fame. You've gone for um, the Manix classic debut, Generation Terrorists. I have, um, although it's a tough one because the Holy Bible and everything must go. I 
definitely up there. The Holy Bible probably is my favourite. But just in terms of the sheer, just how it all began, I guess, I could not pick Generation Terrorist and and pick out some of the songs that are on it. Um, And just, you know, I just love them for that sort of, you know, how they, their mission statement, they started, they started huge. They were brave. You know, they weren't afraid of, uh, you know, so you, you know what the press were like with them back at, back in the day. They kind of loved them, but they laughed at them a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it's just that self-belief. It's that album. It was self-belief. And whilst it probably could have done with a bit of editing, um, despite it sort of not being received in the way I guess we wanted it to, when you look back at it now and you look at what's on it, and 30 years on, you're still at gigs and people are still dancing to Little Baby Nothing yeah. or Motorcycle Emptiness or Slash and Burn. Um, you know, it really has it really has sort of stood the test of time. Absolutely. Like I think, they have. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, it's um, like, I think you, you just you just referenced to them, but, you know, it's, it's so ambitious, so bold, yeah. so brave of a of a of a of of a debut album by anybody, um, yeah. let alone someone from Wales, you know, and what, you know, that, you know, 16 million copies and then. I know, yeah, and then we're going to break gonna up. break up and <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. But um, do, what from a PR point of view, that sort of comments and statements like that, how, um, how, how did you, how do you react to those sort of things? Is it, is it terrifying or are you, are you sort of like, um, yeah, proud of it, I guess. I'm I'm really proud of it, and I've always been proud of it and them, and and that that is the case today. Um, but but what I love about this band, it, as I said previously, is that self belief. It's like, I guess when you come from a place like Blackwood, when you come from Wales, there there wasn't a great line of rock bands mm-hmm. coming out of there, so. You're A, growing up in the middle of the miners' strike, you're devouring the enemy, and you're looking around you and there's nobody, you know, like John Squire picked up the guitar because Johnny Marr picked up a guitar. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's Liam because of Ian, and there's that great kind of lineage that goes. With the Manics, you're sort of growing up in the 80s, and it's Shaking Stevens, and it's Tom Jones, and it's Shirley Bassey. Nothing wrong with those things. So, you know, I love the way they they kind of, they had to fight so hard to get out and and that belief and, and I don't think they cared. I don't think they cared that people took the piss and and the press were a bit harsh. Mm. If you remember some of the reviews, they were nasty about them. Um uh, it, you know, so it it took great courage for them to follow their dreams and just have that sheer self-belief, like bordering with Richie on on I don't know, you know, like not culty, but just, you know, just I, I believe he didn't care what was thrown at him. He didn't care whether that was a physical bottle at a gig or Nicky Wire was knocked out in a pub for wearing a Kylie T-shirt. You know, it gave them balls yeah. where they came from. And it was big and sprawling and it was like the acts they loved from gener- uh, from Public Enemy to Guns N' Roses to Clash the Ramones and, and just where you look where they were taking their inspiration from, um, you know, of course they were going to be, it was going to be big. And at the time, I think at the time that arena rock, you know, it was called pomp. 
And it was always a dirty word. I don't know why it wasn't. Nowadays, it's all about how many numbers you do and how many arenas and stadiums you're selling. Back then, it was it was a dirty word. The enemy were a bit sort of mealy-mouthed about it. You know, if you wanted to sell 16 million records, you were laughed at. But, you know, thank God they sort of, they had that ambition. They had big dreams, you know. Yeah, there was a lot of like headlines obviously referencing their Welshness, like, you know, you sexy motherfuckers and stuff like that, which didn't even make sense. So, you know, they're from Blackwood and... Um, yeah, it just shows you the ignorance yeah. and they wouldn't get away with that today. No. Oh, absolutely, yeah. C- can you remember the, like, the band talking to you specifically about the anti-Welsh stuff at the time? Or? Not really. I think if any, I mean, you know, obviously I didn't work with them at the time. They were living with me. So I might have been privy to fleeting conversations. And I think maybe they're a bit hurt, but I think if anything, it gave them strength. Mm. It gave them a complete like, fuck you, you know, we're going to prove you wrong but the, the press were you know they were you know they were tough on them yeah you know as the, pre- as the press were back then i think as well um once they had reached that real level of mainstream success where everything was go do you think there was a more comfortable embrace of welshness obviously the the welsh flag started appearing on nicky's base then has remained ever since yeah i think he may have already always had that but I think, you know, the, the enemy, you know, the enemy in the music press, you know, they, they sort of went with the flow, didn't they? It was sort of, you know, everyone was had a bit of Mancunian in them when we were all baggy and everyone suddenly became a bit Welsh or their granny was Welsh when the sort of, when the rise of the Welsh acts came along. Yeah. And All or Nothing was a big part of that, like Stereophonics, Feeder, Super Furries, you know, we did a lot of them, but then there was Catatonia, you know, Gorkies. So... You know, people stopped that then because, you know, they were too powerful as, as a sort of group of musicians. You know, it it wasn't it wasn't like Manchester, but it was the sort of rise of the, you know, the cool Welshies. Yeah. And um, talk, talking to Manchester, uh, well, Manchester, um, Burnage, uh, where the Gallagher brothers were from, obviously you've worked with them in the past and people like um, Ian Brown. Um, none of which are shrinking violets. How, how did it sort of compare to working with the Glamour Twins with Nicky and Richie, who weren't short of a soundbite? Similar in a way, uh, I mean, certainly with Ian Brown <clears throat> and Liam and Noel, I think, you know, it was, it was, it, they just believed, you know, and they took the knocks and I think it made them harder and stronger. Um, and I think having worked with Noel closely, they were they were all quite organized you know richie was very organized nick's very organized you know they're very involved as is noel in everything that happens around the manics whether that be artwork whether that be um you know what they're wearing in photos so there were similarities in that i guess it's that working class ambition i guess it's that this is going to happen and we believe um and certainly ian brown was was kind of like that, he had that belief. Noel did, Liam did, and and all of the Mannix did, I think. And I think any kind of slurs or knocks or, you know, jokes about it being subclash just made them a bit stronger. Yeah. Terry mentioned um, they were living with you at the time, and I think you previously described the album as, as the soundtrack to your marriage. It, it kind of was, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned a few of the songs earlier that, you know, have stood the test of time. What were your... What are your personal highlights? Well, for me, Motorcycle Emptiness. Yeah. And I just love Slash and Burn. I love the video they made of it. You love us. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just, there's there's so many on it when you think repeats. 
just loved being at you know, hearing that live um and you know and and thinking about some of the lyrics now and that West Barclays with yeah. Midlands Chords, <laughs> you know funny I was listening to the Holy Bible I was listening to something on shuffle the other day and a walking abortion came on and I just you know that kind of who's responsible you are I mean it was quite prophetic it's mm, like you know, yeah the sort of Mussolini and anyway we can get into, <laughs> into making comparisons about today um but yeah I, I loved the record and the soundtrack to my marriage, I guess, was stitched into Askew Road, where we all lived, yeah. six of us, because obviously Richie was a big part of the family back then. Um, but also, I don't know if you remember uh, CD UK. Yes, yeah. yeah. Which, so every Saturday morning in our house with all the Mannix, <laughs> um, we would watch that and we would wait. And it, the, there was great excitement if it was the rock chart because that's where they get all opinionated about who was coming up and who was going down. And that, that was sort of, it was the, the CD UK, it was Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, and it was Public Enemy. And it was their kind of mission statement as well. And I, I don't know if Philip cribbed it from them or they cribbed it from him, but it was always their ambition, their statement, their manifesto was you know, the extreme politics of public enemy mixed with the ambition and arena rock of Guns N' Roses. And and I think that, you know, they carried those things, you know, political messages, their ambition for live, you know, and we and, and they realised those ambitions when you've seen some of their bigger gigs. They were just incredible shows. Yeah. So, so yeah, Saturday mornings in Askey Road with CD UK, with <laughs> Guns N' Roses playing here and and public enemy and then... The public enemy sample was used in Motown yeah. Junk, as you know. Um, and I think Philip and Martin got the Bomb Squad, who are the public en- enemy sort of production engineering team, to to mix it. So, again, you know, this tiny little band from Wales reach out to public enemy's production <laughs> team. God, yeah. <laughs> and they say yes. And, yeah. and it is, if you believe and you ask, you know, and, again, that's that's why i sort of ad- admire them so much because they never they ne- they were never shrinking violets and they didn't think in you know it was smart rock and roll wasn't it it was it was you know as i say it was sort of big dreams and and being young and and getting out of blackwood initially yeah yeah um, you mentioned uh, obviously that you know growing up through the miners strikers they did and you know there's a a political thread that has obviously runs through the music of, of the Manics right through, you know, from the start, like to, to the, the present day. Um, but I guess music in general, like more recently, you know, doesn't feel to have the sort of political edge that, you know, that we've had. And it feels like now is the right time or the best time to be able to put a statement out. What, why, why do you think that's gone away? I just think, I, I think it's an industry thing. I think, you know, probably as an industry and this, you know, I might get attacked for this, you know, we're scared. We won't get on a playlist. We won't get on this, you know, so we have sort of blanded our way out and it makes me crazy because when you look at what's going on the last 10 years or, or, you know, under a conservative government, you know, where is Jerry Dammers? Where is Joe Strummer? Where is, you know, Nicky Wire still around? Where is Richie? Where are those bands getting Mm. fucking angry about it? You know, there isn't even half decent social commentary from bands you know it's all about 
it's about possessions and it's about, you know, and I think it could be that many, maybe there aren't many working class bands coming through. I mean, I think Idols were a good one. Yeah. Idols are a great one. Um, and it does make me mad that, that you know, we look around us, look what's going on in the world, you know, whether it be climate change or whether it be what's going on domestically. Why isn't some kid in a bedroom screaming about yeah. it? Yeah. And perhaps they are, but perhaps they're just not getting um, the attention that a band like the Manics got or a band like the Clash got. I do think it is like, you know, we're making music in a Bunsen burner right now, yeah. you know, for, for that, for a lot of what we listen to, you know, and you, you know, I mean, we have meetings where it's like, you've got to take guitar parts out so that it's just smoother for radio. And it's like, it's just crazy, but it, but it is tragic. You know, you'd have to go and ask a load of teenagers in bedrooms or rehearsal rooms around the country. You know, if Ed Sheeran's a team, it is the greatest we've got on social commentary. Yeah. Just want to give up. Stormzy, I guess, he had a go. Yeah. yeah. Well done, Stormzy. Well done, Idols. If everybody is trying to get on certain radio shows, yeah. there's probably a policy that mm. you can't. I mean, the Holy Bible wouldn't get play on mainstream radio anyway. But, no. Um, but I, I, and you've got, I think, I guess, you've got to put a nod to Columbia Records and Rob Stringer. Yeah. For yeah. sticking with them, believing in them. I think today, and, and, the fact that this band have been with the same label and management team for this long, again, that doesn't happen today. You know, I've worked with lots of bands who signed for so many albums, released two singles and were dropped. Yeah. You know? So so hats off to Columbia, Sony, Rob Stringer, Martin Hall, you know, for, you know, sticking with them. And it's very rare for a band to, to be a band, albeit it's not the exact same lineup because of Richie's disappearance. But but with that same team, and I just can't see that happening with many acts today. Yeah. It just doesn't, and it's tragic. One thing, um, obviously, has really strikes me, certainly in their early career, is their absolute fearlessness. Would you say um, there was more chance to sort of have misfires back then in your early career compared to now? Yeah, I th- I think so, and I think they were always articulate enough to explain themselves. Maybe not at that moment, but after the fact. <clears throat> and I think they were a band who was sort of born out of the press because they gave great copy. They also had a great PR and manager in Philip Hall. And I think they did make friends with journalists who may or may not have liked the music, but but they liked what they were about and they loved their intelligence. Um, and And, you know, people like John Harris used to just you know, want to sit and talk to Richie about what he should read next or fans would follow them around. So so journalists were open to the idea that if they did say something a little bit um, controversial, there would be very good reason for it and they would come back, like with Michael Stipe or like with... Um, you know, John Lennon, you know, and so they suffered. They Not to say they didn't suffer because America was quite unforgiving about their comments about John Lennon, but, you know, you have to allow a band to be sort of young. Mm-hmm. I think today in this can- cancel culture, it could have killed them. Yeah. You know, it could have really crushed them. So, you know, whilst I'm pining for the old times, I think if this band was starting today and said some of the things they said, it would have been a complete 
catastrophe. Um, obviously, you know, a hugely sensitive um, subject as well. But what are your memories of the for real incident? Um, I wasn't there. It was in Norwich. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of widely known about what he did. I remember Philip was freaked out um, because I think Steve Lamack, for all his sort of calmness by, in witnessing it, it probably did freak him out. And I know the next day, again, I wasn't in the office because I wasn't part of the company at that time. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, in the cold light of day, I think Philip persuaded Richie to call Steve Lamack and sort of apologise because I think whilst you're in that moment you think wow this is strange the next day the shock will probably hit you yeah and I think that was appreciated I think the enemy news desks were were a little a little shocked about it um and and that's sort of that little flurry of activity I vaguely remember but I wasn't in the office I remember Richie being at home that night I don't think I was that sympathetic at the time. And he was all sort of bandaged up and he had 17 stitches and every now and then he'd sort of wince and I would be sitting there going, I'm not commenting, (laughs) I'm not sure. Because all I thought about was the fact that my husband, who was standing there running to get white towels that soon turned red, hated the sight of blood. (laughs) And I just thought, I've got all the people to be around. Philip was just like, oh, he's like not the best person to deal with something like that. But he did. But... Yeah, I mean, on a, I think it was quite shocking. I, I just can't imagine how A, you wouldn't pass out with the first cut and B, yeah. how he just kept going. And as Steve Lamatt described it at the time, it was so sort of, you know, something about his eyes and his intention. It was so mesmeric. And I think that's what Steve Lamatt was carried, that carried him through to actually witness it to the end and continue the conversation. Yeah. And then the next day, I think the shock... F- um, kicked in and I think Richie did call and, and just say look I'm sorry but you know I was trying to make a point that we are for real um, so yeah it's ugh, yeah. yeah that was uh, <clears throat> that was a, a mad one and now, even now when I see the pictures I think Jesus yeah you, know, you kind of love him for making that statement but not for sort of you know that kind of self abuse it's like I don't know. Do we bleed for our art? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, absolute fearlessness obviously came through in their early gigs, um, explosive sort of live sets. Um, I read recently a good friend of yours, uh, Cafe St. Luce. Um, I don't know whether you remember this, but she used to lend James a hat, which he would put on, and he would more or less invite the crowd to sort of rain down, you know, bottles and whatever they could throw at him. And you were just fronted out. Any particular sort of memories of that? I don't remember the hat, but I remember Kathy and I and a lot of uh, the girls in the office, Gillian, we probably did. There's probably lots of photo sessions where they're wearing an item of our clothing. <laughs> but but Nicky Wire said it himself. He said, we love to be hated. Yeah. You, you know, so they probably did invite that. You know, they did go and walk around the pubs of Blackwood wearing makeup and a Kylie Minogue T-shirt. I, 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 somehow it gave them strength. The more you... The more they rejected, the the more strength it gave them. So so I remember, you know, sometimes you were quite scared at gigs because it did get raucous and there were things being thrown at them, as were many gigs at that time. Now we're not allowed to dance, move, smoke or do anything else, are we? Um, But back then you'd go, shit, you know, they actually probably did get hurt and 
but I think it just as as you said it just it just put more fire in their belly and you know and it was that sort of you know that friction with the audience that the audience kind of loved it and they were they they didn't they were sneering at them a little bit um you know and, and I always remember Nick saying you know we love to be hated <laughs> I guess the, the 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 name of the album as well I never really sort of thought about it in a way but you know it's obviously um, indicative of that sort of um that friction and that feelessness and they you know they are going to rip something up and start again but Am I right in thinking that the working title was um, Culture, Alienation, Boredom and Despair, which is obviously from the song Little Baby Nothing. We, were you aware of um, any sort of conversations around the naming of the album? Not really. No, no. Again, it, it could have been a conversation that that I was cooking in the kitchen when they had in the living room, but, mm. but, but no. The Culture, Alienation, Boredom and Despair would have been a good one. Yeah. A long. <laughs> Another um, great uh, thing about that time as well was um, the original idea with the You Love Us uh, sleeve was to have Chris Eubank on the cover, who was a figure at the time who... No, I don't remember that. Yeah, who sort of reveled in, you know, people loving to hate him and like a kindred spirit in the Mannix in that respect. Um, Yeah, exactly. He was, yeah, yeah, very similar, actually. Very similar. And he knew he was winding people up and and it gave him, you know, he flourished more. It was like, come on, bring it on, you know. Am I right in thinking um, you worked with them on, was it um, You Love Us or Motown Junk where you first came in with, was it Roy with Robin? Motown Junk, uh, Philip was managing them and running Hall or Nothing. And I worked for a producer called Robin Miller in the early 90s. And Robin Miller is an amazing producer. He did Sade and Tom Robinson and Everything with the Girl. Everything with the girl. <clears throat> but he had a stable of producers and he brought me in to look after those. And Philip gave me the demos and I took them into work. Philip was like, how do we make a record? It was like, I don't even know where to start. And I played it to Robin um, and he really loved it. And I kind of thought out of all my producers, he'd get it because he was a bit of a hippie, but there was a real punk side to him. Um, and, and, you know, the band turned up in Willesden they had no drum kit, they had no equipment. And I was ringing Philip going, they haven't got anything with them. And he was like, well, I thought you all supplied it, which you don't for the record. Um, and that is where they met Dave Ringer, who was the tape op. And that relationship started there. Oh, God, I think yeah. it was kind of love at first sight for all of them. And they discovered that Dave was a great keyboard player. And I think he played on some of it. And then, as you know, Dave went on to tour with them and Dave went on to work on a lot of their their bigger records um but yeah it, it, i remember <laughs> i remember them sitting at, there used to be a little tv room at, at the power plant in wilsdon and they'd all sit around watching like home and away or something in the day it was like so fucking ordinary <laughs> in wilsdon yeah and yet they were making this record with motown junk with like public enemies you know sampled at the beginning and it was yeah and i remember when it came back to the house and we got the final mix in sitting in the, in the living room, playing it back. And James just couldn't sort of sit in the room with us. He sat in the hall. I remember that quite vividly. And he just thought, I can't actually witness you all listening to this. And, you know, it's kind of among their very first recordings. So it was, it was a big deal. Yeah. And um, you're talking about that sort of real um, fiery punk spirit. Um, there was a, a, a situationist sort of trick that they were toying with in terms of having the sleeve made out of sandpaper so it would destroy all the other records in the rack. <laughs> so it's that thing again of just having, <laughs> just just not like um, 
being scared you to are, piss anyone off. Like you are better at this than I. Am. Right. <laughs> I, I I'm sorry, I don't remember. I don't remember the detail of conversations. I just remember thinking, "What a great sleeve!" Yeah, um, and it still stands up today. It's just perfect. Um, but yeah, I don't know where that is. I'd have to ask the band. All right, okay. Um, can you remember seeing the Holy Bible sleeve uh, when it first came out? Yeah. What What was your sort of memories yeah. of that? Um, obviously, it, it just, was Jenny Savile. What an extraordinary painting it mm. was, and 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 their choice of it. And I think they were right because Jenny Savile is huge today, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, it's it it probably is one of my favourite, and it it shouldn't be because it's a really uncomfortable record. Mm. But it, it's that marriage of those words and and James's genius in terms of you know wrapping a melody around those words that that is is part of the reason why I love this this band so much. I was reading uh, some of the early reviews of um, Generation Terrace. I can't remember who who wrote it, but they talked around the like these words weren't written to be sung, you know, and like yeah. the art of um, James and Sean's sort of um, uh, musicianship to be able to turn those lyrics into something. That they did. And to be something that you, you know, to be something that you can you can sing, yeah. to be so melodic. Yeah, you know, yeah. the first time I saw them live, I always thought it was, and this is nothing. This is not against the other three, but I always thought it was a bit of the James Dean Bradfield show because I guess because I came from a recording background, um, I thought what he was doing, and and at the time it was like shoegazing and into yeah. baggy and you know. And what he was doing, you know, I know he was sort of stealing elements from bigger rock bands, but thank God he did. <laughs> God, they were thinking big. But but I, I just couldn't believe how he, you know, he spat those lyrics out or he made them beautiful and he made them so melodic. And, you know, you can, you go to concerts, people know every single word, yeah. every nuance yeah. of, of how his vocal was originally recorded and, yeah, I, I think, I mean, they're all amazing, but that, that great marriage of lyrics and words is just incredible. Incredible. Could you remember the um, the reaction when they released the album in America? Because obviously, you know, you had this, the super groups like Nirvana and Soundgarden at the time and, you know, obviously didn't really scratch the surface there. I don't think it, I don't think there was much to write home about in terms of what was coming back from America. Yeah. I think it was quite a short-lived relationship um and i can't remember in any detail of that american reception to it was that um, something that was sort of um you know that the band really wanted to to to, to break american inverted commas that... i think they did but i think i think like a lot of bands when you go there and you see how massive that country mm. is and how hard it is to break sometimes you think actually Don't bother. you know and i and i can't mm. speak for them um, in terms of whether that is, you know, they kind of thought, I don't know if we can do this. Um, but it, it's a door, you know, I, I, I saw Feeder trudging around America for seven months in a fucking transit yeah. and, and, and look what happened there. Mm. So I think, I think it might have been a combination of them sort of not helping in the beginning, throwing a mini hand grenade at it. Um, and also just just how daunting it is. But they have been back, and I've been into America with them, and they supported Oasis, and they were amazing shows. But that initial reception, I, I don't know. I, I can't. I can't remember. Um, I know it entered the rock charts here at one. Mm. 
I just, I'm not sure about this sort of American buzz around it. Have you talked about, you know, the, the band Living With You and that was um, Askew Road. They, they they wrote the song Askew Road on, on, on Lifeblood. What was the, um, what was your reaction to that song? I've heard that song uh, twice in my life. The first time is when it came in the office and I, I, I couldn't listen to it to the end. Or I think I, I, yeah, I lost it when I heard Richie's voice at the end. So I, I, I think I might have clicked on it once in the last few years, but uh, I've never played it again. I just can't. It's just too close to home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even like James and 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 the English Gentleman, even that kind of tugs at my heart. Yeah, of course. You know, it's kind of skips along, but yeah, Askew Road. I mean, it's it's a massive compliment that 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 they wrote a song about. A part of their life and I was involved in that mm. part of their life and um but yeah oh have you listened to it it's not yeah it's a tough song yeah. isn't it yeah and it, but it must uh, fill you with massive pride obviously last September the Manics at the top of the chart yet again um yes. ultra vivid moment what an album amazing well, I mean I cannot and I have become obsessed with and I've even texted them when when the album first came to me um and I played it through and it was in a different order. And when I got to Still Snowing in Sapporo, I was just, I became obsessed and I still am. Mm. It's one of the best songs they've written yeah. in years, hands down. And someone said to me, oh, yeah, because it's the first track on the album. But the initial album I link I was sent didn't have it. I think it was track seven. So, yeah, what I mean, yeah. I think it's that um, perfect synthesis of the Manics, though. It's the, it's the melancholic lyrics with yeah. the uplifting music, you know, with complicated yeah. illusions and after-ending stuff. Just amazing yeah. songs. I know. And Nick is the king of that sort of melancholy, isn't mm. he? But that melodic melancholy um, and, and snowing in Sapporo, I just think it's going to be, you know, if this band are around in the next 20 years, it's going to be a highlight of, of, you know, every show. And, I mean, just incredible. And, and amazingly, the, the band you're managing now, Himalayas, supported Mannix now. They did. They <laughs> did. <laughs> and that was quite a highlight for, for them because obviously if you grow up in Cardiff, mm. you know, they're a band you really look up to. And in particular, Mike, our guitarist, um, is just a huge, huge fan of the Mannix, you know. And I think as a collective, um, probably the Holy Bible is one of their favourite albums as, and, and they took a lot of inspiration from it. There's a song called We Love to Hate that the Himalayas yeah. did a little single a few years ago. I think, you know, you can hear it in that. You can, and a lot of journalists kind of said it. They're actually not, they don't sound like the Manics, but I think the spirit of it and the sort of nod to who came before is is definitely in them. I, I think Joe has got it. Um, a little touch of James in him, though, in terms of like he's quite quiet away from the scene, but yes. then he, he turned into someone else behind the mic. You know, there's yeah, the venom in his eyes and the, the voice. Joe Williams that. is this really very uber polite young man who mm. who writes great songs and is wonderful company. But when he gets on stage, there's an intensity <laughs> that is just quite kind of frightening because mm. he might catch your eye and he looks like he's going to kill you. <laughs> I love that. I need to try and capture that in a photo. That's why I stood at the back, yeah. But yeah, yeah, he does have that kind of thousand yard stare that's a bit terrifying. Mm. You think, Jesus, what's you know, is he gonna kill someone or but yeah, they are they are a great live band and, and I'm really happy that they they had that sort of nod from the Mannix to go along to Cardiff and, and Landudno. Yeah, know, amazing it was to such see. a thrill. It was such a thrill for them. 
what's on the horizon for um for the Himalayas? What's next? Um, well, we are just mixing um, their debut with Dave Sardi, oh, wow. who is in American mixing. So we're sort of not very patiently waiting for those mixes <laughs> to come back. Um, and then I think we're going to set about, uh, we'll probably start with a couple of singles sort of around Easter into the summer. And then I reckon they'll probably tour you know, some of the festivals and then we'll probably do something big in October into an album next year but yeah it's it's um it's a great record I'm really proud of it it's you know they're a band that um were brought to my attention by Lou Whiting who I know you know who is uh lives in Wales um she and I worked together when we both worked for Simon Fuller weirdly and we both worked on Will Young isn't it amazing (laughs) how the so the band sort of carried you then to this Welsh rock band but but she asked me if I would work with her on them and I'm so glad she did and that was sort of February 2020 and I was about to travel up to Cardiff to meet them and then we know what happened yeah and so I didn't meet the band I was co-managing for for months so we just did this we did zooms and all sorts of things um but I'm so glad she did and I, I I'm really happy with the way it's gone and to do that through a lockdown um you know actually get them signed because a lot of people I mean they are signed but we haven't sort of fully announced it yet we'll come with a sort of but yeah I'm yeah I'm chuffed to pieces for them exciting can't wait watch this space what is it about Welsh bands that seem to uh I I don't know who came I think actually Philip Hall did the alarm Yes, yes yes yeah he did the alarm and then I don't think it was a case of a Welsh band finding him. I think the Welsh band we know as the Manic Street Preachers famously wrote that letter where I don't remember it and I shitting well wish I had a copy of it somewhere. <laughs> but they wrote a letter to a lot of people in the music business, um, Jeff Barrett among them, a couple of journalists, and said where, you know, and it was a sort of ranting sort of statement of intent, but we're going to kill ourselves if we don't get out to Blackwood. And Philip was... Probably, I I don't know if I'm correct in saying the only person who responded to the letter. Okay. And he and his brother Martin got in a car, drove to Wales and met the band. Um, and they, they put on a little performance in a sort of, uh, in a school classroom that the janitor there gave them a, a couple of hours at the weekend. And he came home and he said, I'm going to manage the Manic Street Preachers. And I think they absolutely clicked. And I think they loved, uh, I mean, he, James kind of describes him a little bit in the in the song, The English Gentleman. So, you know, mm. that I think they thought that a manager would be sort of waving a cricket bat and smoking a cigar. <laughs> and Philip was the polar opposite of all those cliches. Um, and they, and they, you know, they, they became really close and, you know, they came to live with us, as you know, and, uh, and the rest is history. And then when Richie went missing, James came back for a while to stay with me because he was the only one who was in London and he was the only one who was alone in London. I think the others had were sort of partnered up and had gone back to Wales. So, you know, when the press sort of started to say what a great scam Richie's disappearance was, um, Martin and I didn't want James sort of going back to a flat alone yeah. and sort of seething about that, you know, that kind of, that really hurt um um so yeah they uh so yeah so welsh bands coming to hall or nothing is is 
I guess it started with the alarm and then I think the Mannix came along and then the Stereophonics and then Feeder and then Super Furries. And, um, and I think the reason why All or Nothing got Oasis is because um, I thought it was because I did the Stone Roses, but their manager said it's how you handled the Mannix. Oh, really? No. That we knew you were a company that could yeah. handle Am I right in thinking you started working with Oasis more or less seconds after Manic Millennium? Is that right? Or they or oh, no yeah. rang you or I something mean, like yeah. that? Yeah. Oh yeah, I came back from the Manic Millennium and I think I got the call on the you know, that sixth of January or something and mm. I had a meeting two days later and three days after that I got the job and I, I and then I went to meet Noel. So you, you had the mother of all hangovers <laughs> coming back into a chilly January. And then, and I think the meeting was like, can you come over to the office at 9am? And it was no. like, what? <laughs> um, but their manager once told me that, because I said, oh, I, you know, how did you come to, to me and Hall or Nothing? And he, uh, is it because of Stone Roses? And he said, no, it was because of the Mannix. Oh, wow. I That's mean, great. their manager is Welsh, but I think, you know, what he said was how you all had, how that, how we and the band handled Richie and everything else with dignity is yeah. is, is what um, they liked about us. And that, that was you know? Mark, Marcus Russell, was it? Marcus yeah, yeah. Russell, yeah. yeah. Yeah, who still manages Noel. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and and the Oasis were very good to the Mannix, actually. They gave them, um, they gave them a lot of time and, and great support. Noel is very good at sort of passing back the baton. Mm. He's very good to... to the younger acts and support bands. Yeah. That, that must have been a bit of a pinch yourself moment going from four years from Generation Terrace to supporting Oasis two nights in Edgeworth really as well. Was, yeah. yeah. In the UK. And as I said, you know, we talked about America briefly, but we, we, the Man- Mannix toured with Oasis in America and Screaming Trees. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Mark Lanigan. Yeah. So here we are with, with Mark on <laughs> yeah. this record. It's yeah. just, it's incredible. Yeah. And then obviously a, a year on from there, then, Nikki with the tiara at Nine X, which is one of the indie oh, images for the Manix fans, really. It, re- I mean, mine as well. And that, that, it, when I think of the Manix live, and I hear, I hear that crowd. If you think of them mm. live, I can see that tiara. I can see that massive fucking grin <laughs> and his fur line collar, and that is just a standout memory for me. And and just the joy on his face, singing out along. I mean, it was just yeah, they were real bittersweet moments mm. um because you know there was a few people missing but you know um thank god they continued and and i'm so happy that they you know they achieved what some of what they set out to do which was you know you know that ambition was sort of you know yeah they uh they were condemned to rock and roll <laughs> <laughs> incredible well, Terry, thank you so much for your time tonight. You I really appreciate it. It's um, it's been amazing. I know it's um, difference in times, but where we recorded the first part to the second part, yeah. so <laughs> really appreciate okay. that. Um, your patience with it, but um, yeah, thank you ever so much for your for your. For well, your thank time. you for having me. No thank you, Terry. Thank you, Terry. To close out the episode, we've got a tune from Himalayas. Uh, we spoke about it throughout the episode. Um, originally released in 2017 and produced by Stephen Pringle. Um, it was once described by Adam Walton at BBC Radio Wales as a Bond theme played by kind-hearted psychopaths. It's now reached a staggering 28 million streams on Spotify. So here it is. It's Thank God I'm Not You.
see, but I could be so much worse. You could call me narcissistic, could say I'm out of worth. You could call me this kind of Satan, I could be so much worse. Sadistic, I could be so much worse 